you would, take out your Bibles and turn along with me to Mark's Gospel. We are at week number 11 of a long series, probably, in the Gospel according to Mark. As we turn to God's Word, let us turn to Him in prayer once again. Almighty God, as we've just been singing about, we have no hope apart from Christ. And we thank you, Father, that your word and your spirit witness to the person and work of Jesus. And so, Father, we pray and ask now that you would be pleased to open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, our hearts to, to our, our minds to know and our hearts to receive the glorious truth about Jesus Christ. Indeed, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. For we pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, as I mentioned, we're here at week number 11. Uh, I'm willing to guess it's probably gonna be at one time week 40 week 50, maybe, as we go through Mark's gospel. And so therefore, it's, it's not surprising, uh, those of you that have been around, that our usual practice here is consecutive expository preaching through entire books. Now, why do we do that? Because God's word comes to us in books, 66 books. Now, topical Preaching is necessary at times, and in fact, uh, those of you participating in our Christian education, you'll beginning to understand that our confession of faith is a topical summary of the teachings of Scripture, and that's good to have. We're going to need to have teaching and sermons and proclamations on specific topics, but in general, we're going to be going through letters of the New Testament, prophets of the Old Testament, histories of the Old Testament, gospels in the New Testament. We're going to do that, and, and I, I got a helpful illustration a few years ago as to why consecutive expository preaching is really healthy for God's people, and it's this. With topical preaching, it's like we hold the microphone to the text, and we ask the text questions like, what does the Bible say about justification? And we, we find those texts, and what does the Bible say about this and that and the other? And we hold the microphone, and maybe we get to something that we're not so sure about, and we therefore uh, don't ask the question. Well, consecutive expository preaching is like God holding the microphone. This is what I want you to know. Because who's got the wisdom to hold the microphone and know exactly where to get everything? But God has been pleased to arrange his word in books. So probably God's got a pretty good idea of what his people need. Now today is one of those texts that if I was holding the microphone, so to speak, I would probably choose to avoid it. However, since all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, we're going to approach our text today with confidence that God will use His Word for the building up of His people, His church. Now, why are we studying Mark? Well, it's the shortest gospel. It's 16 chapters, 678 verses. 
It's believed to be the earliest, as we said last week, the core gospel, as it were, with Matthew and Luke using it liberally. It's an ideal gospel, therefore, to study and to master, or rather, be mastered by. And as we said last week, with only three questions and answers, it's the shortest catechism. Because today there is widespread ignorance and confusion regarding the identity of Jesus Christ. We have in the Old Testament, Testament Christ predicted. In the New Testament, in the Gospels, Christ revealed, preached in Acts, explained in the letters, and expected in the book of Revelation. And so Mark's purpose and aim, using that idea of Mark being the shortest catechism, is to make three things known, who Jesus is, what Jesus came to do, and how someone should respond to the person and work of Jesus. And if ever you get lost in Mark, come home to this. Mark says right off the bat that this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark is deliberate and orderly and purposeful in how he organizes and structures this book. And as we said last week, but since we're now back into this after a long absence, it's worth repeating. There's really two halves to the gospel according to Mark. The first half, part one, answers the question primarily, who is Jesus? The focus is on the person of Jesus. And then there's a hinge right in the middle, as it were, where part one swings and becomes part two. And that hinge is found in chapter 8, verses 27 through 29, where Jesus asks a couple of questions. Who do people say that I am? And who do you say that I am? And the answer given is you are the Christ. And from there on in the book is the second half, part two, and it answers the question primarily, what did Jesus come to do? And it's a focus on his work. Mark's gospel is indeed good news. Mark, the man, is Peter's interpreter. His method is a docudrama where he's assembling all these videos and still pictures of the life and ministry of Jesus to present the message of the gospel. And this gospel is centered upon Jesus. It's about him and it's proclaimed by him. Because Jesus is the man who, as we will see, is fully God and fully human. He's Christ and the Son of God. He has a mission and he has a message that we're finding out week after week after week. We'll discover, as I believe we've already been discovering, especially from chapter 1, verses 14 through 15, that Jesus, in a word, is the king who brings with him the kingdom of God. And in our text this morning, we will see that King Jesus issues a warning. A warning. Almost 20 years ago, back in January of 1997, I knew that I wanted to marry my wife. But I knew I needed to follow the established cultural tradition and meet her parents before I did that. So by myself, I flew from Virginia to Texas to meet her parents by myself. I had never met them before and stayed with them uh, for a weekend. And it was a great visit. And Sunday night, after the evening worship service, I was in the car with my future father-in-law and mother-in-law who y'all have met a few weeks ago or seen again 
And um, my father-in-law, even though he's really eager to get to church, he was really eager to get to home that night. And um, we were on our way, halfway home, and the blue lights came on. And wow, we get pulled over. And uh, I, I keep telling my father-in-law it was a test, and he passed the test. But anyway, the, the officer comes up to the, uh, the side of the car, and, and he has my father-in-law roll down the window and and, uh, you know, the whole, y'all have been there, I'm sure, you know, where are you headed to? What's going on? What's the hurry? And so the officer said, how about we have a deal here? And my father-in-law says, yes, that would be good. He says, how about I don't give you a ticket if you don't speed anymore? In other words, I think that was a good deal. He agreed to it. Um, that was a warning, a warning. The purpose of the warning is to say, hey, there is danger ahead. Therefore, change your thinking. Change your behavior. A warning is not something to ignore, but rather something to pay attention to and heed. And God's warning of people, both all people in general and his people in particular, is one aspect of his great love. Join with me now as I read Chapter 3, verses 20 through 30. Then he, that is Jesus, went home. And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out demons. And he called them to him, and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter... But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they had said, he has an unclean spirit. we finally gotten to the two-point sermon. And the two points came after it went to the press. And so if you're taking notes, there's two parts. First, an explanation of the text. And then an application of the text. In other words, what's going on here in the text? And then what needs to go on in our lives today? Well, let's now consider just understanding this text, explaining this text. There's an interesting arrangement that we will see a little bit this week, but more next week as well. It's a Markin sandwich. It's a split screen for comparison. Notice in verses 20 and 21, Jesus' family. 
But then beginning in verse 22 through verse 30, it's the religious leaders. But then back to verse 31, you see resuming a discussion about Jesus' family. And these two groups, Jesus' family and the religious leaders, have two basic charges against Jesus. Two accusations. The first, Jesus, you are mad. And second, Jesus, you are bad. Scene one, the family. Charge number one, Jesus is crazy. He is out of his mind. He has lost his senses. He's beside himself. He's mentally deranged. Those, as it were, humanly speaking, closest to Jesus, mother, brothers, think he's, he's, he's lost it. And why? Why would they make that charge? Because they couldn't eat. And it reveals both misunderstanding and unbelief. And Jesus, in our next week's text, is going to, let us know what it means to be part of his family. But then the scene shifts, and our main concentration is going to be in verses 22 through 30. The religious leaders have a charge. Jesus is evil. His family says he's crazy. The religious establishment says he's evil. The scribes have come from Jerusalem because they have heard that Jesus is getting attention. Why? He's been teaching with authority. He's been healing with people. Everybody can see with their eyes that something is going on with this man, Jesus. He's gathering crowds. Remember last week? Huge crowds. To the point of Jesus has to almost escape from the crowd. They, the religious establishment, religious leaders, come. And if they could have, they would have disproved his miracles. But of course, they can't. Because the fact of his power is never in dispute, only its source. The religious leaders would agree, probably with the family, that he is mentally deranged. But also, he is possessed by evil. And this accusation by the religious leaders is really two parts. Jesus is on the one hand demon possessed and on the number two, the power that he has is that of an evil response. Well, you know, in our confession of um, sin, our, our assurance of pardon, it said that, you know, when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. He went like a lamb that's silent to his shearers. There's a time to speak and a time not to speak. Well, here is a time that Jesus spoke. Well, what did he say? His response is a series of parables to illustrate that the kingdom of God has indeed come and is coming through Jesus. You know, it's interesting. His family thinks intervention is needed. You know, I never used to hear that word, but I hear it about in schools now, you know, someone's having trouble reading and there needs to be intervention. Some uh, youth is about to get in trouble with the law. There needs to be intervention. Well, his family, Jesus' family thinks intervention is needed. Indeed, it is needed, but you know what? Jesus is the one who intervenes. Jesus is the one who brings the intervention. Look with me again. 
And he called, verse 23, and he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. The first two parables are from war and politics, a kingdom and a house. And he's exposing the logical fallacy that if a kingdom is divided against itself, it will collapse. If a political house, a political dynasty, maybe they're thinking about uh, some of the rulers of that day, is, is opposed to each other, it's not going to last. Jesus just uses, as it were, common logical sense here to refute that. Now, some of you may be thinking, hey, I've heard this before. A house divided against itself, a kingdom divided. Where have I heard that? Well, maybe you're thinking of Abraham Lincoln's speech in 1858, a house divided. But you know what? Back in 1792, right here in the Commonwealth of Kentucky, they had to adopt a motto as they were welcomed into the 15th state of the Union. The Commonwealth of Kentucky adopted its official seal and its motto, United We Stand, Divided We Fall. And where are they getting that? Well, they're getting that here from God's word. But then there's a third parable in verse 26. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. And that parable is just an application of the previous parable. It concerns Satan, which they are accusing him. Because they're accusing Jesus, as we see he is possessed by Beelzebul, a name of a, of a, a pagan god in that day and time. And by the prince of demons, he cast out demons. And at the time of the Pharisees, they would another name for Satan, or the adversary, was Beelzebul. And this final parable we see beginning in verse 27. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Indeed, Jesus is saying there is a strong man that has kept people in bondage to sin and captivity and death. But Jesus has arrived to free people, to release them. And he's doing that by defeating the strong man. The strong man is strong, but Jesus is stronger still. And in other passages of Scripture, it really helps us understand the work of Jesus coming to destroy the works of the devil, who, by the way, kept people in slavery to a fear of death. So Jesus is saying, the kingdom of God has arrived. I'm here. And all these exorcisms, all these healings, I am taking back from God's enemy what he has done. I'm rescuing people. Now, before we move on to verses 28 through 30, which is where we'll stay for the remainder of the time, I think it's a good time to ask this question that the first um, half of Mark is asking. Who is Jesus? He is either mad, the view of his family, or he's bad, the view of the religious leaders. He's either crazy or evil. Or, the third choice is Jesus is who he claims to be. God in the flesh, fully divine, 
Forgiving a man who is paralyzed of sin, which only God can do. Healing. This is Mark's view. Who is Jesus? He's the eternal Son of God in the flesh. He's the King coming and has arrived. Now some of you who may be familiar with C.S. Lewis's writing and may be familiar with his well-known book, Mere Christianity, may be well familiar with the most probably famous and well-known passage. And I'm going to read it now because I think it, it, it summarizes what's going on and it helps us to frame what we'll see going forward. C.S. Lewis writes this, quote, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that being Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. Do you see that? It's covered with his family and the religious leaders. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else he is a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any of this patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So Lewis gets an amen. Wow, that's... <laughs> Jesus opens his concluding statement now in verse 28 with truly I say to you. He says amen at the beginning and not at the end. And my friends, this has never happened before. This is a radical, unprecedented shift. Truly Truly, amen, amen, I say to you. All sins will be forgiven, the children of man, but what, but, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they had said he has an unclean spirit. Here we are at the unforgivable sin, the unpardonable sin. First, what it's not. Is it murder? Adultery? Hey, let's look at the life of David. He's guilty of both. He asked forgive he repented and asked forgiveness for both. Is it denying Jesus for a time? Peter, forgiven and restored. Is it persecuting Christians? Hey, the Apostle Paul, Saul, became Paul. The Bible is full of stories of sin and pardon. And the Bible calls it like it is, doesn't it? It shows us the mess of sin and it shows us the beauty of forgiveness. Um, hymn number 55, To God Be the Glory. 
Verse 2, O perfect redemption, the purchase of blood to every believer, the promise of God. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, forgiveness receives. The vilest offender? The worst? Absolutely. So it's important just to keep in mind what the unforgivable, the unpardonable sin is not. Well, let's look now at what it is. The unforgivable, unpardonable sin, what it is. We'll remind ourselves now of the context. Jesus is in conversation with religious leaders who have been exposed to God's word and they've also now been exposed to the person and work of Jesus. They know God's word. They are familiar now with Jesus. What is the unforgivable sin? It's the sin of stubborn resistance to Jesus, which eventually expresses itself in treating him as the ultimate evil in our lives. It's the sin of of regarding conversion to Christ and obedience to Him as the ultimate folly. It's the sin of defiant hostility toward God, calling light darkness and calling good evil. Listen to this from Isaiah chapter 5. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. In other words, it's the sin of hardness of heart that is unwilling to repent and believe and so unable to be forgiven. In a word, the unforgivable sin, the unpardonable sin, is resistance to the Holy Spirit. It is a grieving of the Holy Spirit. It is a quenching of the Holy Spirit. Turn with me, if you would, to John's Gospel. John's Gospel, chapter 16. In that passage where Jesus is speaking with his close disciples about many things, he talks about the work of the Holy Spirit. And we see in verse 8 of John 16, and when he comes, that is the helper, the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin Because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. In other words, the Holy Spirit is the one who changes our hearts. So that we see Jesus for who he is. And we go running to him for forgiveness and the abundant life that he promises. This is continual hardening to the work of the Holy Spirit. Hardening, hardening, hardening until one day 
There's no more opportunity to hear the voice of God calling. And remember, this is being directed not to the unbelieving world per se, not to the pagan Gentiles here. This is to those who are religious, who know God's word as it were, and yet when they are confronted with the person and work of Jesus, they can't even say, well, you know what? Let's reserve judgment. Let's, let's, uh, can we spend some time with you for a while? Absolutely not. You are of the devil. Who is good? Who is the standard of what is good and true and beautiful? It's Jesus. And who is the standard of what is bad and false and ugly? Satan. And here they see in Jesus what is false, what is bad. And what is ugly? This is good news. This is good news because this passage is a warning. This is not the announcement of a guilty verdict along with associated fines and imprisonment or both. So how do we heed this warning and not be paralyzed by this warning? Well, let's apply to the text in the few moments we have left. Like Hebrews chapter 3 that we heard read earlier, and chapter 6 and 10 in particular, this is a warning to the visible church, to those who would identify themselves in one way, shape, or form with, yeah, I'm part of the church. Here are three applications of the text. First, know and understand that this warning is an expression of the love of God. It's an expression of God's love. Remember, God doesn't act without warning. Can you believe the accuracy of weather forecasts these days? I mean, unbelievable. They say, you know what? It's going to be 36 degrees and it's going to snow. And I say, no way. And sure enough, it is 36 degrees and it's snowing right at 2.15 when they said it would. Have anybody been impressed with the accuracy of weather forecasts? But my friends, God's word is even more accurate. It's guaranteed God's word. Never, ever fails. Here's an example in 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You hear that? Secondly, know and understand that this warning is a sober and serious statement of the ultimate triumph of the justice of God. God is holy, righteous, and just. And His justice will prevail. Third, know and understand that the warning is an urgent call for immediate action. An urgent call for immediate action. Now, if you're like me, you get swamped by email, right? And sometimes email that you should respond to, you don't to because it just disappears. You know, the accidental delete. My friends, this is like 
one email address and one email. And it's in your inbox. It's both urgent and important. And for those of you that think those quadrants of uh, seven habits of highly, highly effective people is accurate, it's right there, urgent and important. And you know what? It's really not about anybody else. Uh, you don't need to be thinking, uh, who, who needs to hear this? Who, 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 who do I need to tell this to? It's to us, my friends. It's an urgent call for immediate action. You know, Jesus says, come follow me. And we've already seen it in Mark. And what happens? People drop their nets. People leave their, their uh, tax booths. Come follow me, Jesus says. And what you don't hear in the text, but it's there, it's now. Come follow me now. My friends, be careful of the I'll do it tomorrow way of life. Second Corinthians chapter 6, Paul writes these words. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Quoting from the Old Testament. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. My friends, when the religious leaders were with Jesus in his presence, that was the day of salvation. And as, God, as people are in the presence of the Lord through his word and as his spirit is in present, that is the day of salvation. Murder. Adultery, lying, covered by the blood of Jesus. The hardness of heart that eventually gets so hard it can look at Jesus and say, evil. It's the limb that you're sitting on that you have just sawed. The warning says turn or return to Jesus Christ because he is the only way to God. Well, we heard about the motto in 1792, united we stand, divided we fall. Well, back in 2002, some legislatures in the Kentucky legislature noticed that in the preamble to the Constitution of the Commonwealth of Kentucky were these words. And it's a, it's, it's a Latin motto that they found in the preamble to the Constitution of the Commonwealth of Kentucky. And it says this, let us be grateful to God. My friends, let us indeed be grateful to God for this warning. It is love, love, love. Amen. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for providing us with your word and spirit, a map and a compass to make it all the way home. Oh, Father, we confess that there is no other way to you other than through Jesus. 
And Father, he is the ultimate expression of your goodness, your truth, and your beauty. Father, would you open our eyes to see Jesus as he is made known in your word. And as your Holy Spirit bears witness to his saving work. Father, may we be grateful that you love us so much that you warn us to turn and continually return to Jesus. Father, may we be thankful for the blood of Jesus that indeed covers our many sins. For we pray in his name. Amen.